Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we covered sleep apnea, diagnosing it, and how to treat it. This month's report focuses on atrial fibrillation, or AFib, a treatable heart rhythm disorder. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay, and the topic of our medical report is atrial fibrillation, a very common heart rhythm disorder, especially among older adults. Basically, in AFib, the heart's electrical system starts misfiring. It can be caused by other health issues, such as heart damage or defects, hypertension, and lung diseases. It travels with a number of health issues, too, like some thyroid problems, obesity, and sleep apnea. And while AFib by itself is rarely life-threatening, it can lead to health crises that are, such as strokes. It's all too easy to brush it off because it can be experienced in episodes that come and go, and who wouldn't want to assume they just need to drink less coffee? Well, here's the bottom line from our guest, Dr. Jonathan Crathen. AFib is reversible if we treat it early in the sense that if we diagnose and treat AFib at the early stages, we do not see any progression of AFib, and actually patients can go AFib-free. The converse side of that would be that if patients have AFib for a very, very long time without being treated, it becomes very hard or impossible to get them out of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Crathen is a cardiac electrophysiologist. He uses catheters threaded into the heart to locate the short circuits in heart tissue and strategically zap it to create a scar to block the faulty signals. Fixing faulty fibrillation is a huge part of what he does every day at Deborah. So he's got a lot to tell us about preventing AFib, treating it when it's diagnosed, how to manage it, and even reverse it. Here's my chat with Dr. Jonathan Crathen. So electrophysiology, exactly what does that involve? So looking at the conduction system of the heart and any abnormalities within the heart itself. So atrial fibrillation, give us another latest, greatest definition. So atrial fibrillation is characterized by abnormal atrial activity, uh, wherein the top chambers of the heart are beating very rapidly that can conduct to the bottom of the heart. With atrial fibrillation, the top chamber of the heart, the atrium, uh, is beating very fast and erratically, uh, where blood is not filling correctly. That can then send impulses to the bottom chamber of the heart, causing the bottom to go fast. And with that abnormal blood pooling in the top chamber, uh, you're at risk for forming blood clots, which can lead to a stroke. So symptoms of AFib. So most commonly, you would feel palpitations or a rapid erratic heartbeat. You can have shortness of breath, especially with activity, and in some cases actually have chest pain. Is it possible, though, to have AFib going on and have no sense of it at all? Yes, and that's actually somewhat common, so-called silent AFib, where the same atrial fibrillation is occurring, but patients don't feel symptoms. So what are the risk factors for atrial fibrillation? The biggest risk factors are your normal cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, uh, history of a heart attack, uh, and then some non-cardiac risk factors like sleep apnea, uh, obesity, and then there is a strong correlation with alcohol use. Does AFib tend to be a hereditary thing, or is that more just if you've got hereditary heart risk, it's just something to watch out for? Yeah, no direct correlation between uh, family risk of AFib, but certainly the cardiovascular risk factors are, are hereditary, and we can see AFib in generations related to that. If you get a flutter occasionally, under some stress, been surprised, feeling nervous, do you need to worry about AFib? Yes, although it could be other, other mechanisms or arrhythmias other than atrial fibrillation, 
um, those symptoms could represent atrial fibrillation as well. We've all been under a whole bunch of stress these last couple of years. Are we seeing a higher incidence of AFib? Are, are you dealing with more of it? Yeah, there does seem to be a higher incidence of AFib with the COVID-19 pandemic, probably more so related to stress and triggers of AFib, whereas we're not seeing a direct correlation of new cases with COVID-19. Some long COVID sufferers experience what they describe as as a racing heart or or palpitations. You know, there's a lot of ongoing research about COVID-19 and atrial fibrillation. Uh, COVID-19, the incubation period is about, you know, five to seven days Um, which is not typically long enough to cause fibrosis or scarring in the atria that we would see as new AFib. Some of the newer research does indicate that patients that were already on the road to developing AFib, COVID-19 can certainly be a trigger. uh, And I think that's why we're seeing an increase in cases. What are the problems that AFib can lead to? Being treated for AFib, dealing with a stressful time in your life, how do you need to modify your behavior? Arguably, the biggest potential problem with atrial fibrillation is the risk of cardioembolic stroke, uh, which is why anticoagulation is so important. Other problems uh, would be symptoms related to fast heart rates. And then over time, there can be biochemical changes within the heart itself uh, that can lead to structural changes, including enlargement of the chambers, worsening function of the heart, and can actually lead to things like heart failure. So AFib could be a symptom of a train derailing physically. Yeah, if left untreated, there's a number of biochemical and molecular changes within the heart that can really lead to a lot of problems downstream. Absolutely have much greater risk for cardioembolic stroke. If you look at someone that has AFib versus someone without AFib, the risk of stroke in AFib is 500 times higher. Development of heart failure and long-term changes with AFib, unfortunately, some of these changes can be permanent. So if you had untreated AFib for a number of years, a lot of these changes are going to be difficult or impossible to reverse. So other conditions that can feed into AFib, obesity, sleep apnea, how does that work? With obesity and sleep apnea, you know, very closely related entities that essentially create problems with breathing that causes downstream pressure against the heart that can lead to increased electrical activity within the heart that further leads to AFib. Over-the-counter type drugs, can they set you up for an atrial fibrillation issue, uh, cold medicines, decongestants, anything like that? And and is that then kind of a temporary thing, like stop taking them, um, switch to something else if you've got a head cold? Or is is there something else out there that people should uh, maybe think twice about? Yeah, I think that there can certainly be triggers for AFib um, from over-the-counter medications. Things like decongestions that have have a stimulant in them um, can certainly be a trigger for someone that may have developed AFib regardless, uh, but they develop it earlier earlier because of these triggers. So I think it's always best to talk to your doctor before you take anything over the counter, um, just because there are certainly things that can set you up for worse outcomes. How do you diagnose AFib? And what are the kinds of stages of AFib that come into your office? Do you ever stumble onto AFib, you know, so that you're catching something super, super early as opposed to somebody who's really starting to feel terrible and, and you know, has gone through the process? Yeah, so di- diagnosing AFib can be something where patients don't expect it uh, and we uncover it. Um, diagnostic modalities are changing very rapidly, particularly with uh, ECG-enabled watches like the Apple Watch, where we're picking up AFib that we would not have looked for it previously. There's no screening recommendations currently for AFib. But a common consult we get is someone goes to see their primary care doctor 
uh, and they have an irregular pulse at the time of visit, and it ends up being atrial fibrillation. So what is the actual process for diagnosing it? The gold standard for di- diagnosing atrial fibrillation is the 12-lead EKG, which some primary doctors get, um, some cardiologists get, uh, and sometimes they're getting the first EKG with an electrophysiologist. Um, but that would be the, the number one way of diagnosing it. Uh, and then we have longer-term monitoring, like halter monitors, um, loop recorders, uh, or, or even probably more so in the future will be the use of devices like the Apple Watch. I've always known that doctors are like not thrilled about people getting diagnosed by Dr. Google. However, you are talking about the Apple Watch kind of leading people to to notice something that sends them to their doctor and that that can be an okay thing. Absolutely. And they, they, they did a, a very large study of over 40,000 patients with pulse monitoring on the Apple Watch um, with pretty high diagnostic accuracy uh, of patients with irregular pulse where 84% of these ended up being atrial fibrillation. Um, so the study still needs some validation, uh, which is why I say it's more a tool for the future, uh, but certainly a lot of promise in that. Have people ever kind of freaked themselves out about AFib and you've basically had to talk them off their caffeine diet or um, their energy drinks? Or I mean, can, can you bring on a state of benign AFib from this stuff? I mean, how, how do they play in? Because, boy, you know, we take our melatonin to sleep at night, and then we want our energy drinks and, and such um, to keep us awake during the day. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that as an AFib specialist? So if you divide up the most common stimulants that, that we use, um, caffeine through coffee, um, alcohol, and energy drinks, um, there certainly is a, a big uh, correlation between alcohol and atrial fibrillation. Um, the term would be holiday heart, where you have a patient that uh, drinks excessive alcohol on the weekends and can actually develop AFib from that. Um, so that's pretty common. Energy drinks, uh, due to the high caffeine content and other stimulants like ginseng, there, there have been a lot of case reports about younger patients developing AFib from the energy drinks. Uh, coffee, in moderation, uh, the jury's still out. Um, a lot of studies actually suggest a lower risk of AFib with moderate coffee drinking. So I'd say of those three, uh, the most dangerous for AFib would be alcohol, followed by energy drinks, and then coffee may not be as dangerous as we, we used to think in the past. So clearly, if you are diagnosed with AFib, you need to be in very close communication with your doctor about how much of any of that, you know, the, these beverages you'd be consuming. But are you saying that overconsumption of these beverages can lead to AFib in somebody who, who has risk factors? Yes, absolutely. Uh, overconsumption of energy drinks and alcohol uh, can certainly lead to AFib. Um, the jury's still out whether excessive coffee drinking can lead to AFib. We'll pause our conversation with cardiac electrophysiologist Dr. Jonathan Creighton here and pick it up in our next podcast. Talking about caffeine, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration considers 400 milligrams a safe amount of caffeine for healthy adults to consume in one day. That's about four cups of brewed coffee or eight cups of black tea. Now we're talking about the small size from the coffee shop. But again, that's not the kind of caffeine hit Dr. Crathen worries about. It's the concentrated added caffeine in so many products. One can of a typical energy drink is like drinking almost two cups of brewed coffee. And so is the one tiny 
two-ounce energy shot. Those shots are really concentrated, about 200 milligrams of caffeine apiece, or half your daily limit per the FDA, in one shot. Also in the ingredients panels to notice, guarana. It's added to some beverages now. It's from a South American seed that contains four times the caffeine of a single coffee bean. And with caffeine added to so many medications, even over-the-counter products, it's entirely possible you're getting more jolts throughout your day than you might realize. We continue our discussion with cardiac electrophysiologist Dr. Jonathan Creighton in our next podcast with more on preventing, treating, and managing AFib. It drops the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddeborah.org.